And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast late on a Thursday night where I've been avoiding it all year long. I, I, I did too much, too much of it last year. Got a little caught up, little irrational exuberance, but it's time to dive into the East leading Philadelphia 76ers, my white whale from a year ago. And there's nobody better to do it with than the hosts of one of the very best NBA podcasts, one of the very best sports podcasts around, despite the fact that no sports podcast has made fun of me personally more than this <laughs> one. The co-hosts of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez, Spike Eskin and Mike Levin. How are you guys? Man, this is an honor. Thank you for having us. Truly, this this was the only reason we ever started the podcast was to end up here. So it's a huge honor. Well, that's ridiculous. But, but <laughs> it's it's nice to see you guys. And um, let's just dive right in. I don't whoever wants to go first. We're all. It's been a lot. It's been a lot from yeah. the process. It's always a lot. It's the always a thing. lot. It really is always a lot. The process. Some of the picks that hit. Some of the picks that took years to show they hit. Some of the picks that missed. The Twitter thing, the hinky resignation letter, the ill-fated let's go all in on big guys and they got demolished in the first round against the Celtics, the, mm-hmm. the Kawhi shot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Uh, the near hardened dalliance uh, of this season. So let's just, I just want one of you to start, like, how's the team? How are you feeling about the team? You're in first in the East. The starting lineup is one of the best high volume lineups in the NBA. Um, and, and well, I'll just, I'll just leave it open. Like if this is the team that goes into the playoffs this year, how do you feel? I, I feel good. I mean, I think that they are, it's different right now. I think Joel Embiid being as good as he's ever been, uh, hitting a level that really could only have dreamed of when he missed his first two seasons, um, being a legit MVP candidate, it's, it's really it's it's genuinely special, and I think that Tobias being as good as he's been this season, and Ben starting to hit a second gear, and they're shooting around, not just you know, bunch of sort of uh, oompa loompa sort of waddling around the paint, sort of bumping into each other left and right. Uh, it I think they're going to get you know make some moves at the deadline and maybe tap into the buyout market and such, but right now it's just it's. I feel like I've said it's different four or five hundred times over the past uh, few years of Embiid's career, but really it feels different now, and it really does. And I think that they legitimately have a shot to uh, to get to the finals. To Mike's point, you know, we we remember some things very, very, very clearly, like the older things, but there's something about forgetting all of the past three seasons that makes the next season a little bit easier to do two podcasts a week on. So you kind of have to. So I agree that it feels better. And Joel, clearly 100% different. But there is this sort of, uh, like, when, when he said in Fight Club, when Edward Norton said something about everything seems like a copy of a copy of a copy, there is sort of this image in the back of my mind every time Mike goes, the vibes are good, <laughs> they really like each other, that, you know, everything. I, I feel like I've heard it all before. So I am very cautious if this is the team that goes into the playoffs i would say that they would have a puncher's chance of making the finals but i think they are a major piece away from being a true threat why does it feel that way because i've i've had one of the reasons i wanted to have you guys on because i've had that lingering feeling too like Mm 
even as Simmons, there was that Boston game like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, where he did nothing for three quarters and the whole thing was going to be, okay, this is another Ben Simmons thing. Like he's not getting to the line. He's not chasing contact. And then in the fourth quarter, he went bananas. And since then, he's been all-star worthy. And and Tobias, as you said, Mike, has been this is the best version of that you're going to get of Tobias Harris. He's decisive. He's shoot like my favorite Tobias thing is when he's bringing the ball up the court and he sees a small guy is the only thing that's between him and the rim. And now he's just like, I'm gonna go for it. Yeah. And, and yet it still feels like I, I I can't. Maybe I'm just scarred, but it just still I I don't know if I don't know why it is. Why do, Mike? Maybe you don't agree, Mike. Maybe you're more optimistic than than Spike is. No, I mean I think that. You know, we've talked about this a bunch. Like they're they're still missing a high level perimeter creator um, that can create offense for himself and for others. And it's just a they're a weird team. Like Embiid and Simmons is not how if you were looking at the top twenty players in the league and you said pick two of them, like you wouldn't pick these guys together to start your team. I think it's starting to work a lot better than it has. But just two guys that are not high volume perimeter creators and shooters, it's it just. They just look weird. They look like a throwback of a team with some new AG elements, but a lot of just there's a lot of a lot of heft in there. And so I think you know Spike wants another perimeter creator. I think we we might get a little bit of one, but I think it's going to depend on you know Embiid being as good as he's been in crunch time, which thus far he's been excellent. His true shooting is ridiculous, uh, especially in those late game minutes. It's uh, interesting because they're the crunch time offense has been the question. With the exception of the five seconds that Jimmy Butler was on the team, yeah, um, <laughs> right, yeah, was who's going to do it? And is but the anomaly this year is they're they've been sensational in crunch time. They're basically the best non Damian Lillard crunch time team in the NBA. I'm looking at the numbers now. Joel is 14 of 28 in the last five minutes of games, and if you if you look at those minutes, they're getting good shots. But to your point, so Joel's taken 28 shots in the last five minutes of close games. Tobias Harris has taken 17. He's 8 of 17. Who do you think is third on the Sixers in crunch time attempts? Do you know already? I feel like it's Shake. No, it's not. Shake is one for three. Mm-hmm. Could be Danny Cork- Green. Could be Corkmas. Finals veteran Danny Green. Okay. Yeah, my guy. <laughs> ben, he's two of 11. Uh, of 11. Ben uh. Simmons is seven for seven. <laughs> Spike preliminary celebrating Danny Green yeah. taking 11 shots. <laughs> Ben Simmons is seven for seven. Seth Curry is four of seven. And they're running like a disturbing amount of last minute crunch time stuff through Seth Curry, which is, I think, part of the reason why I'm a little viscerally nervous. But this is the the, the question that Joel Embiid has sought to answer for three years is sort of like, why not me? Why can't it be me? I'm going to learn to face the basket so I don't have to post up at an angle all the time and they can send help. So, like, why not him? So the team, I I quite... Uh, well known to much of our podcast audience was a 90s Knicks fan. I was a Knicks fan like in my teen years. And I remember that team and, you know, their crunch time player was Patrick Ewing and they were built this in a sort of similar way. I think one of the things that gives me pause, not just that that team never did it and was missing that one thing, but was while this team is good defensively and has two outstanding defensive players, if your calling card is going to be defense, you have to be awesome. And and you those Knicks teams were always one or two, you know, in the entire league. And not only that, they had a bunch of players who just defined themselves by how they played defense from like, 
you know, Anthony Mason to Derek Harper to John Starks. There were just a lot of players. And I don't, while they're, this team is talented and Embiid's probably the best defensive player in the league, I don't, I don't even get the same thing that I got from the Memphis teams, from the grit and grind teams. And, uh, and, and why it can't be Joel is just, maybe I've just watched too much playoff NBA basketball where they give it to the guy who can dribble and shoot and pass, and he takes it in the final couple minutes, and he either creates a shot or shoots, and they win or they lose. Maybe it could be otherwise, but I just get the sense that when Joel has it 12 feet away from the basket in the playoffs – they will close on him. And it's going to be up to, you know, one of those other guys could hit a shot to win a game, but can you do that over and over and over again and get through the East and get through the finals? That's where I'm sort of suspect. Well, it appears it's just never going to be Simmons in, in at the end of, in the last five minutes of close games. It's just, it just doesn't appear that that's how, how it's going to unfold. His game just hasn't developed that way. Um, and it's part of the reason I have to pick my all-star reserves for Monday and Simmons is like in that group of four or five guys for one of the last two spots. And, and he's been unbelievable. He, he might be the best perimeter defender. He's not even a perimeter defender. He's just a whatever defender. And, and I just feel like I, my brain can't help but flash forward. And I'm like, it's going to be the second round. And he's going to be standing in the dunker spot trying to scrounge offensive rebounds. And everyone's going to say, well, where's Ben Simmons? What's going on? Like, I'm, I'm afraid of that. Yeah. I mean, I think the Sixers are sort of defined by how consistently they do the things they need to do. For Embiid, it's like obviously taking care of his body, and this, is, this year is a major leap in that, and also being willing to shoot threes. Tobias, it's being willing to like make quick decisions and go up with it. Take those threes, move the ball, don't try to do like 2008 Carmelo Anthony stuff. And for Ben, it's are you willing to cut and screen and roll and move hard when you're not when you're not the perimeter creator when you're not running in transition like how willing are you doing are you to do that and we saw that like once or twice in the playoffs and then kind of went away from it and then we saw it like in the in the last game with uh with Adam Bede uh against the Jazz where Ben had 43 or whatever uh and was like this is great can we can we bottle this and do this all the time and it's just so often it's you feel like they they take it as a point of interest and they decide to do it. And then it sort of over time sort of weans away. And that's why we've seen Tobias basically, you know, over the last two weeks, he's shooting like two, three threes a game. He shot no threes a couple games ago. Like that's just, it's unacceptable. And you got to wonder how, you know, a, a, in big moments when that stuff will strip away and all of a sudden it becomes the, you know, clunky guys in the lane offense. I've been pretty guilty of defining Simmons by what he can't do rather than what he can. I mean, I've been incredibly. This is, a, this is introspection here. Wait, we're, we're, well, no, we're really I, tapping into something now. What I've really, and I, I think, I think it is his responsibility too that I think both he and the organization were like, he's the point guard. And he was like, I want to be the point guard. And through the years, it probably faults aside prevented and his desire to be that maybe prevented them from acquiring the sort of player that we need. Now, as Ben has bought more into, I think he has gotten better as he has become less involved specifically in the offense. Joel is doing his thing. He's just sort of there. He's able to cut. He's able to screen all those sorts of things. Those are great. But it and 
No, he's never going to be that guy that you're talking about. He's, I don't think he's ever going to like approximate that guy. No, but but and that's fine. He could still be really good. The problem is is that they're both the 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 organization prior to Mori, the organization's just just destruction and set on fire of assets. Like everything was a dollar burning a hole in their pocket to use, which left them with very little extra stuff in order to acquire a player like that. And then paying what they paid for Tobias Harris has just put them in a situation where, unfortunately, as you mentioned, they could end up in a playoff series where Ben's deficiencies are full on display, even if it isn't, even if he has bought into this, which Who knows? Who knows what he really wants to do? But if he has bought into this, it's still somebody's still got to have the ball on the perimeter, and and it's either Seth Curry or Tobias Harris or Shake Milton. And I love them all in different ways, but none of them are when the other team's got, you know, James Harden or Kevin Durant or, you know, um, even Jason Tatum or uh, Kyle Lowry. Like all every other team seems like they have a better player that does that than we do. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Well, you mentioned Shake Milton, and I know he's been in and out of the lineup and stuff, but it feels like it's been a month since a big Shake Milton game. And, And that gets it. Part of it, too, is... I just don't. He's missed the last four games. I'm looking now. Um, I guess he, he was 11, 15, 12. It hasn't been like, but he had he had that stretch where it was like, is he going to be six man of the year? Is, yeah. is it going to be him and Clarkson? And I just all these guys off the bench. It's just complete feast or famine. I have no idea what anyone is bringing to the table on any given night. Guys are going to oscillate in and out of the rotation. I just I can't I can't really trust any of those guys. Yeah, I mean, well. Their shake has lately this season sort of done the thing that befalls every player that enters the Sixers facility, which is sort of forget how to shoot. Or have well, I love shooting. I love when Spike before was like Fultz aside. So many Sixers discussions from the last ten years are like this huge giant weird thing aside. Like yeah. we don't, you just don't even need to talk about it. We just say the word and just leave it be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there's so many there's too many things. To to really delve well, into that's it. why I don't want to retrace. I've already done the podcast and the columns where like we retrace all the stuff that's happened and like was yeah. the Jimmy Butler was the second Jimmy Butler trade a mistake? Should they have kept the first team and not even gotten to? Like we've already done that. I'm now this is a team, but then again, I mean, you guys have talked about this a little bit on your pod, but our audiences don't totally overlap. Like, do you go if and if and when it comes to it, do you do the same thing with Beal 
that you reportedly tried to do for Harden? Just throw everything you have left, including Simmons, to try and get Beal? I still think what the Nets gave up was kind of like more, it was as much as you could give up, right? Harden is, Harden is better than Beal, significantly better than Beal. I would trade Simmons and some picks for Beal. I, I just think that you could, as great as Ben is, if his job is going to be this, you know, you mentioned uh, when you were talking to Ian Begley about the Knicks, about RJ Barrett, you're like, look, if you can't shoot in the NBA, you either have to come off the bench or like I, I would I heard you saying these things and I was thinking about Ben. Like if you're That's a complimentary- so sad that I was talking about RJ Barrett and you thought about Ben Simmons. Well, well no, you said it makes me sad. You you said you said if the, you want to be a contender and you're not the the primary offensive player on the team and you're not the center, you either you have to you, you either have to shoot or you have to come off the bench, right? So I guess my point is that if I got Beal, I think I could get a wing who maybe isn't much of an offensive player, but I can throw in there and play defense the way the the Nets just got Roberson or or Amon Shumpert or like let's just keep cycling through guys to see who can actually stay on the court and approximate enough of that. And then I have my guy who can score at the end of games and run offense with my best player in Embiid, I would do it. Mike? It's it's tough. I mean I think I think offense is uh, sexier, and I think you don't necessarily need as much defense when you have Joel Embiid back there because you could put Joel and you know the four of us on the court together, and we'd we'd have a top well, fifteen. Yeah, I'm, team. I'm glad you said something because oh, this whole time I've been thinking we really just need to take like three minutes and talk about how amazing Joel Embiid is at basketball. Oh my but god! Please, please continue the Beal discussion. So it's interesting, but I think you took you know Ben Ben missed a a couple games there, and it was like, hey, why are they shooting? threes at such a lower clip and such a worse rate and it's because the stuff that ben does that seem a little bit not not only easier kind of forgotten about but a little you know made fun of the idea that ben is driving and throwing a pass behind himself to to find shooters and and those passes get picked off sometimes but i think that is valuable because he's, he just keeps drawing defenders every time he's on the court especially in transition or like semi-transition and so i think the things he does even if he is just getting you know, at, at his worst, you know, 13, eight and eight. Um, I think they're, they're, they're really valuable. Um, but Beal is incredible. I think, I think I would do Ben and a little for Beal, but I wouldn't do Ben and everything for Beal. Yeah. Simmons is, is, is an incredible player. Like I, I voted him third team all NBA last year. Um, and I, and I do think, I mean, the Sixers, it's kind of astonishing. Like, Maury gets there, and they are essentially shooting fewer threes. Yeah. Like, they're, yeah. The only two teams are taking fewer threes than they are, and Simmons is their entire engine to getting threes, even though it doesn't take any threes. Right. It's a very bizarre thing. Um, I, I think Simmons is a very hard player to discuss because he's the most unusual player in the NBA. Yeah. But I do think linked to that is we do fetishize this, like, well, who has the ball in the last three minutes of a close game discussion where, well, there's 45 minutes that come before that that often unfold a little bit differently. And like three games out of seven, even against a great team, Ben Simmons is probably going to look awesome for those 45 minutes. And maybe you're up by eight going into those last three minutes. I, I, I do think we tend to 
we we do tend to focus on those like last five possessions of playoff games where Simmons does look worse and at the expense of the other stuff. Which the Sixers have been burned before. You know, you think about the Cel- the both Celtic series when you know there's the uh, Embiid missing kind of a bunny that Horford maybe fouled him on. Uh, there's the JJ passes to nobody when Simmons is rolling. Um, then last last year was was an abomination. But it, there's been those <laughs> moments where you're just like, man, it would be nice to have a guy that you could just be like clear out and let Bradley Beal or Dame Lillard or whoever go to work. And, and it, it requires a lot more maneuvering and a lot of times refs to not swallow their whistle on Embiid late. And wouldn't you say that part of the reason we fetishize it is because it's true? Yeah, I mean, it's true. I, I mean, like, I, I would argue that one of the reasons that Milwaukee has failed in the playoffs is because they also are basing their offense around a player who like their primary offense creator can't shoot. And then you get to the playoffs and then they dare him. And all of a sudden you're, you're just sort of stuck. So um, I, I just, I'm 44. I've been watching the NBA for 30 some years and I, I feel like I've just seen that a lot in the playoffs is <laughs> a guy with the ball at the end of the game. There will be some close ones, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you can't lose all of them. You're going to have to win some of them to, to get right. where, to get where you want to go. Um, and Milwaukee very clearly this year is trying to change that a little bit. They're, they're having Giannis screen a lot more for Middleton and Drew Holiday to try and see if they can, get some variety into their crunch time offense, which I think is smart. We'll see if it works. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, who actually scares you in the East? Is it Brooklyn and that's it? Does Milwaukee scare you? Like, what's, or what's the, either that or, like, what's the matchup you'd really like to see in the playoffs? I mean, the Sixers scare me. They're, they are, <laughs> they are, they are their own enemy and shadow and there's weirdness that's going to happen. You know, we, I still every time want to talk about them trying to kill Zaire Smith with a sesame allergy. And so they're and just starting, they're, starting Greg Monroe in a playoff, starting game. Greg Monroe in a playoff game, you know, losing right. the non Embiid minutes by 90, uh, in the Raptors series. I remember, uh, I remember when I first looked up that stat because I knew it was big. And I had this moment where I was looking at the computer and I was like, this, this can't be this the NBA stat site is broken. It, it can't be this big, but it was that big. But you also had to start TJ McConnell in a playoff game that kind of worked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And won. Only yeah, game this year is. There's yeah. weirdness. I think the we haven't seen uh, full-strength Sixers against full-strength Nets. Um, it's going to be interesting. I think I think that the Nets are probably in the playoffs a, a better team, but I, I also don't think that they have anybody that can stop Embiid. And so it'll be a how many threes – and open looks and open swings are those guys getting uh, that the Sixers try to rotate to and get a hand up and how how playable on offense is Matisse that all of a sudden he's he's on the court for like 30 minutes a game in, in those net series. So the, it makes it a little bit tougher on the defensive end for them. There's just a lot of it, it's. Every team has their weaknesses. The Nets certainly have their weaknesses. They don't they basically just decide that defense is optional for the team uh, i like how steve nash after every game when they have a bad defensive game which is every game mm-hmm. says says something like we're not a defensive roster or we're not built to be a defensive team which is the most polite 
and yet obviously <laughs> direct way to be like, our players are bad at defense. We're just bad at it. We got a bunch of bad defensive players. They don't care. Like we're just not, we're not, but we don't have a defensive roster. I think when the Sixers are not clicking on almost every level, they can lose to anyone. Yeah. And, and which means like if they get the Hawks in the first round, I think that could be like sneakily like six games just because the Hawks can score a lot. And if the yeah. Sixers aren't, then it's like, oh, well, crap. But I, I I, also think the Sixers can beat anybody. And so I think it'll be who's making shots, how willing are they to get them up quick, and and who they get at the deadline. So, But I, I think it's, you know, they're the Sixers. They're, they're either going to blow up or they're going to get into a fight, and somebody's going to almost die. I had myself convinced the Nets weren't particularly serious, and I think it was yesterday I was on a run or something, and I was like, oh, they're terrifying like every oh, they're time good. I th- they're so good I think about having those three guys on the court and like our matchup is we have Seth and Tobias and whoever else the you know I them I'm scared of uh and I think there is a possibility what was the last I think it was the last Cavs team that LeBron was on they were just terrible on defense during the regular season and they got to the playoffs and they tried and they were they were passable, and they were so good on offense that it didn't matter. That's basically the last three Cavs teams that LeBron was on. And I just I think Kevin Durant's a good defensive player. If James Harden's going to try, if you know, and uh, like I think there's possible that they could be passable. And then to Mike's point, I think they could beat or lose. To, I'm not scared of the Bucks to be honest with you. Uh, but the rest of the East, I I would be terrified of the playing the Pacers for seven games. If they had Karis LeVert, I'd be, I, I don't want Miami getting it together and having to face them, to be honest with you. Even Toronto feels like they're playing better than they were. Toronto yeah. is poised right now to make a little bit of a run. I don't know if Lowry's playing tonight. We're, we're taping this as the Raptors game is going on, so I'm not checking the box score. But he tweaked his ankle in the last game. But they're about to have their full team back for basically the first time in six weeks. I still think they're pretty good. And I don't know what they're going to do at the deadline, but I, I don't. I, I agree with you. They're not a. They're not an easy out. I still think they're a pretty good team. They're only like two a game out of fourth or something. I mean, the East is so mm-hmm. is so bunched up. Um, the Brooklyn matchup would be so fun just because Brooklyn has the choice of do we play Jordan or maybe we get a buyout center? Do we play real centers for X amount of minutes because we're scared of Embiid, or do we try to stretch him out on defense and just bomb away from three and play Jeff Green at center? The whole game that would be and like double triple and beat every time he gets the ball try to get turnovers because that's the one weakness that's still in his game as much as much progress as he's made as a distributor I think it's I think that progress has been overrated because we're all looking we're all like searching for oh he passed out of a double team and it was like a pretty advanced read he's still like negative assist to turnover ratio his turnover rate has gone down every year of his career, though. It's the lowest of his career. I, I would true. agree. I would agree that that is his weakness. But as somebody who painstakingly watches every second of the team, I would say that stats aside, he looks more calm, more decisive, and more in control yeah. when he is in those positions. And for sure, he is. You know, and and making maybe not making the the awesome cross court pass that LeBron might make out of the post or something, but he will make, make the easy pass. And thankfully, because they have a couple of guys that can shoot, then they're one pass away from a shot. So if he looks like this stats aside, I'm, I'm, I'm more confident this year than I've ever been in him being able to handle that. Yeah. He's excited to make those passes when last year you could tell sometimes he's just like, please don't make me make, please don't double me because I, I don't, 
want to see Al Horford Horford. jab step for a 19-footer. He's also gotten better. Like, he'll take a dribble out toward the perimeter to try and get a better angle or, like, just get a little more airspace to read the floor. He's just been, you know, I had my MVP podcast with Hollinger a couple of days ago, and I said, if you put a gun to my head right now, I would probably vote for Embiid. I I think Embiid, Jokic, LeBron are a clear top three, and you could vote for any of them right now. But, Mike, what do you want to say? You want to say Yeah, I just need to, because I I thought it was a great podcast. The the best ability is not availability. It never has been. Yeah. (laughs) I'm around. Nobody's signing me right now. My, My ankles are great. My knees are in perfect shape. I'm fine. But the best ability is ability. Because it's not like if Embiid's out, you're just like playing four on five. You get another guy in there. It's better to have the best guy, even if it's for less amount of time. Yeah, and he's the so far he's the MVP. I, LeBron doesn't get the MVP for being old and from having his like ninth best season of his career. It's insane. They're they're, they're not even they're not even the best team in their conference. I just well, uh, I'm just I'm more excited for you to resume your war against Denver and Jokic. Your your <laughs> personal Jokic vendetta. If you can you at least take enjoyment out of watching him play. This is what I, what I always said about Jokic was that if he gets in better shape, he'll be better. And all all Nuggets fans yeah. told me was he doesn't need to. You're body shaming him, yada yada yada. And all of a sudden, he lost weight. He had his best playoff run of his entire career, and he's better now. He was out of shape. You can't. It's he's a professional athlete. It's insane. I Jokic is so skilled offensively. One of the best offensive players I've ever seen. Makes me wish I saw Sub- Arvidas Sabonis like in his prime. But you can't. It is the most important position on the floor for defense. And being average, which you bless him with. I'm not even sure I agree. Being average isn't enough. You have to be. You're. You're. Who can win a, a championship without a center who is? at least partially defined by his defense. I just, they're a bad team defensively because their center's bad defensively. Well, I was thinking about this last night. I was watching Orlando, New York, because this is, my life is very, very sad. And and Vucevic is in the conversation for the last all-star spot. And, you know, he had an okay game, but defensively, it's just, if you get within an arm's length of the rim against Orlando, you're going to score a basket because he just doesn't do anything to, I mean, he's, he's in the right place. He's a good positional defender, which is the right way of saying he's in the right place and you'll probably still score over him anyway. Um, Jokic, just as an aside, the Nuggets played in Boston a couple of nights ago and Jokic was like just going bananas the entire game. I think he ended up with 43, had 29 at the half on 10 of 12 shooting. And Mike Gorman, Boston's legendary play-by-play guy and Scalberini were, just audibly cackling at every Jokic basket to the point that it would the broadcast would go silent except for like throaty cackling for five <laughs> seconds. And then they began apologizing on the air because fans on Twitter were angry at them because they were being too complimentary of an opposing player. <laughs> Scalabrini even called, called him the modern-day Larry Bird, and they tried to walk that back. Oh, as man. the game went on, because Boston fans were so angry. That's how good Jokic is. He like he made an entire broadcast experience, and he didn't even know it. He was just out there playing. I'm um, so, I'm sorry that you did bring up uh, Vucevic, who is a former, former Sixer, sixer. And, former sixer. Yeah. and was in the Andrew Bynum trade. Which again, if we're going down the litany oh of God. Sixers things over the last decade, uh, it's really unbelievable. Yeah, it's just yeah. it's 
They traded up for Arnett Moultrie. Yeah, that one. That one's a personal stab in the throat. I, I know. To me. I've heard you guys talk about that. They gave and they gave up a, a pick to get do it. They right? gave up in the pick to get it, and then the, and then Hinky came and got the pick back in the in the Dario Alfred Payton trade. It was Which Mo Harkless a, oh. right? Didn't they trade the pick that would become Mo Harkless for, or is that Vucevic? That was in the like Harkless went to Orlando in the Bynum trade. Hmm. So so okay. it's really like, and then you don't even think you don't even remember things like. Okafor's fight at the bar. Mm-hmm. Oh, we remember. This, this, I know you remember. <laughs> but, but like, you well, what say about by- what about him getting traded, and then having to pull it back and learning that he maybe failed the physical per, per the Brian Colangelo burner accounts. Well, and right. Then, like just you saying the word Bynum, I oh, thought yeah. about bo- I thought about bowling. Yeah. And then I thought about Embiid dancing at the concert. Sure. Which was yeah. like not a big deal, but in Sixers life. Well, it, it, was it, was the, like, it was the same night that they announced he was out for the season. Oh, my God. With the meniscus. How, how about this, Zach? Andrew Bynum said, I brought this up to one of the people that, Andrew Underberger, who writes for us at Writes Ricky Sanchez. He's a very good writer. He is. He's an outstanding writer. He's, he fits perfectly with us. Um, Bynum, I remember, said to the press once, I heard they're growing cartilage in a Petri dish somewhere when he was trying to come back. It's been, it's been a weird run. And so, you know... The fact that the Sixers are good now, they're at the top of the East, it really it does feel like waiting a little bit guess, for another guess, pin to drop. I guess, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess you're getting at the, the question I wanted to end with. It was like, is this, like, as two guys who not only live in, in and breathe this stuff, but started started a business, started a podcast based on it, that has grown to be immensely popular. And it's, this is your life. It's not just, I mean, you're, you don't. You're, you're not rising and falling really with the team in a literal sense, but this is, you've made this a big part of your life. Are you happy? Are are you happy? Like, has it all been worth it? Is this is what the team is now worth all of it? And if we flash forward three years, and I told you you were happy and it was all worth it, like what what does that team look like? Like I like I don't like what are you hoping for in two or three years? It's a complicated question. Yeah, uh, you sound a lot like my therapist, which is great. Uh, yeah, try explaining your therapist the Arnett multi trade. Uh, yeah. Or the, fault, just faults. Just try to explain faults. I showed a video, yeah, for sure. The uh, I'm as far as like was it worth it is usually sort of characterized. Was the process worth it? And for that, absolutely, a hundred percent. For the bulk of the two thousands after Iverson, even towards the end of Iverson and into the Eddie Jordan, Doug Collins years, they were just a pointless endeavor, like a total waste of time. Nobody thought about them. They were they were uh, immaterial to the goings on of the world. And that, then we flew a little too close to the sun and became, you know, had about eight to ten uh, front page stories over the years. But yeah, I mean, Embiid just made his fourth All Star team. Uh, he should be the MVP. Um, a really special player, special person. There's a bunch of, you know, there. We have Daryl Morey, who is basically the the Hinky's mentor, and Doc Rivers, who's one of the winningest coaches of all time. I I mean. Is it worth it as far as like how much time I spend thinking about the Sixers? No, absolutely not. Of course not. What a terrible question, Zach. You've, you're better yeah, than sure. that. But for the Sixers, was was all was the pain and the suffering and stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I I think it was, and I and I hope that I, my own personal life can catch up to uh, the anguish that I've put into this thing if they uh, if they ever win a championship. I guess what I'm asking is, it feels like for the first time in a while, the Sixers are just 
the team. They just started the team. Yeah. And, but then I but then I walked back and I'm like, they were just in James Harden trade rumors yesterday. Like you could you could be going through another giant trauma again in, in a month. Like I, I don't know if this is just a team. I don't know if you would be happy if this were basically just a team for three years. I would tell you that the the first part of you know, we've been doing the podcast for eight years and the first few years of it changed how I view all of this. I'm not the end of this or happiness is not with the best team. Like I am in it for the ride. I want it to be interesting and done the right way. And that is what made me mad the few years in between Sam and and Daryl Morey was just things were being done the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Well, if you do things the right way, you could still not win, but at least you'd know you did the right thing. To Mike's point, if you had told me when the hinky thing started, hey, he's eventually going to get forced out. But a few years later, you're getting Maury to do it. And and Bede's going to be healthy and in the MVP race. And you're going to be this constant. So Zach Lowe is going to spend the whole year obsessed with the Sixers because they're so weird. I'm like, you know what? It's so much more interesting than anything else, which is, to me, more of a treasure than a championship. And I need the ring. Yeah. You need the ring? I need the ring. <laughs> I put too much time and sweat and dents into various parts of my body and apartment into uh, into this team to not to not come away with a, a ring on this thing. Well, look, if if you guys ever win, if the Sixers ever win, and the celebration is like a third of what happened when the Eagles won, I'm, I'm coming down for it. Because I remember when the Eagles won, I have a, a couple, one of my best friends in the world is from Philly. And and I was living and dying with the Eagles through him because I wanted them to win so badly for him. And then I saw the celebration. I was like, and for years he'd been telling me, if the Eagles win, they are burning at this city down. <laughs> and I and I was like, well, that's got to be an exaggeration. <laughs> it didn't end up being that much of an exaggeration. I, I did. So I was in Minneapolis for the Super Bowl. And I saw Embiid before the game and immediately after the Eagles won. And I swear I saw something in his eye watching a Philadelphia team win a championship that I bet you if you asked him, did that stick with you? I bet it did. And if I could have any athlete win a championship for Philadelphia, I would feel the best about Joel. Because Joel's been here since like the beginning. And he's gone. I mean, the guy missed two full seasons with broken feet. His brother died. His, you know, like he's been, there's the, the knee injury and the face injury and the, there's just been so much. So for him to conquer it, I just feel like would be extra special, you know? Well, guys, this has been special for me. I, I'm a, I'm a regular listener um, to the rights to Ricky Sanchez. It's been really a, there's nothing like it. There has been nothing like it. It's a totally unique thing. Um, and, and it's, it's amazing. So Mike Levin, Spike Eskin, um, thank you for giving me a little bit of your time. Everybody should listen to the, even if you don't like the Sixers, or don't care about the Sixers, it's still a great listen. So thank you guys for lending me some time and hopefully I'll see you in, I haven't been to Philly in a long time. I can't wait to go back to Philly. Hopefully I'll see you guys around. Well, I won't see you, Mike, you're not there, but you know, Spike, maybe I'll see you in Philly. I'll be here. Hopefully. Exactly. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. 
Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay, full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. That's OnePeloton.com. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. All right, let's bring in friend of the program, Mr. Kevin Arnovitz, has a very good story out today about how teams are trying to guard three of the sensational young players in the NBA. Trey Young. Luka Doncic and Zion Williamson, who, as Kevin notes in his piece, has emerged as a medium-volume pick-and-roll ball handler in the last few weeks. Mr. Arnovitz, great piece. How how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Doing okay. Whoa, plot twist. Okay. You know what it is? It's it's evening. Oh, it's night. My circadian rhythm is off. I'm out of routine. It's nighttime. It's dark out here on the East Coast. Um Why'd you write this piece? It's, 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 and why'd you pick those three guys? It's an interesting piece. It's up on ESPN.com this morning. And again, it's Luca Trey, Zion, the challenges of guarding these three guys. And it's really, the piece is interesting because this is really sort of what the playoffs are, right? This, this, is, the, this is what coaches sit up all night in their meeting rooms together thinking about and what the, t- what the coaches who have these players on their team are thinking about is what are those other coaches thinking about and how can we th- sort of pre-plan counters for it? But why these three guys and why now? Because I think it's early, right? I mean, we've been talking about how you defend Harden and Durant for years, but these guys, their work's in progress. They're still developing their game. So it's interesting to watch the exercise in progress because like, I think we could define a superstar as a player who, even if you execute your smartest, your most sensible defensive scheme, they can still kill you. Um, so th- that scheme is just the best of a bad lot. But I think it's interesting in real time because we're still figuring out exactly who Trey is, exactly who Luca is. Zion is doing new stuff by the week. So it makes it a lot more fun. I, I'm going to save Luca for last or maybe not get to him at all because I, I feel Ugh. like Luke, I feel like, but I just feel, well, maybe we can start with him then because I, I feel like in the Clippers series, he just answered the question, which is, there is no answer for me. There's nothing. There's nothing you can do, um, except the only. I mean, really, the only solution to any of these players. And, and I wrote about this in conjunction with Game Seven of Denver, Utah last year, when Mitchell and Murray were scoring, taking turns putting up forty and fifty a game. Is you you got to switch it up. Like nothing is going to mm-hmm. work for more than four possessions at a time, and you just have to have great defensive players. Like there's there's no other solution. And Luca, to me, when he did what he did against the Clippers, had graduated into that category of there's just nothing. There's just no one answer to him other than either have two great wing defenders on your team and mix it up 
every every ski. But but there was was some interesting stuff about Luca's tendencies in your piece. You have when he goes left, he's more likely to do X. When he goes right, he's more likely to do X. So let's do Luca then. Like what what surprised you when you dug into the film? What did you learn that you didn't already know? You know, I don't think he's a great isolation player yet, and I know that belies a lot of the evidence um, in terms of just what we see on a nightly basis. But I think one of the reasons the switch can work, so long as he's not ordering Lou Williams off a menu, right? Like, let's just have a caveat that you don't have too weak of a link, is that it seems like opponents are sort of saying, hey, look, if he wants to Let's see, if he wants to play in isolation all night, again, not ideal because there is nothing that's ideal, but at least that takes away what he does best, which is, is there a guy in the league other than LeBron and maybe Draymond who is better at reading and exploiting help opportunities? I mean, that's where they really get you is you make one decision and forget if there's any indecision, you're screwed, but you make one decision on help on a rotation. Boom. He'll, he will find it also because he's enormous. And because he can change speeds and he can make every pass. So I think that's what's interesting is talking to a bunch of coaches around the league who've had to face him is, look, it's it's not it, it's not great. Um, we'll go in the situation there. We'll, we'll just let him, you know, we'll we'll, we'll let him isolate. Uh, you know, maybe we hedge a little bit uh, because Porzingis isn't rolling. So if 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 he wants to pass it off, you know, to Porzingis, like that's not a terrible outcome right now. Um, but I, I think that is sort of what people are settling for is let's just put him in isolation, take away those help situations. And look, if he can get there. And it, by the way, helps a lot if you have Rudy Gobert. Helps if you have Joel Embiid. I mean, this is, you know, we all, I'm trying to, you know, I, I'm one of these. I don't know that I believe in the in the future of the big man in the league. But you, you start, this is what's changed my mind a little bit. When you start to watch a guy like Luca, it's sort of like, you know what? Those guys are more useful you could think, what is this? How they can't stay on the floor? Really? Because that's freaking useful when you've got Luka Doncic at 6'9", 6'8", whatever he is, just completely freight train going downhill. What's going to stop him? And the answer is their best shot is maybe one of those guys. Well, what you're really saying when you say, well, we're just going to switch everything and let him isolate as long as we don't have a 6'2", skinny guy that he can overpower. It's really just sort of a newfangled way of saying, let him get his. We're not letting his teammates right. get off. Um, and and to me, what's interesting is the two extremes of this question, the two extreme answers to this question are like when Murray and Mitchell were going crazy, a lot of the analysis was, well, you got to trap. You got to trap. You got to take the ball out of the hands. Trap, trap. And that's one extreme. Luca is going to eviscerate that. Like if you trap Luca, it's over. Like they're going to get a good shot every single time. The other extreme is, well, drop back like the Bucks, chase him over the screen, drop back like the Bucks do, or like a lot of teams have done, like Roy Hibbert, whatever, and wait for him in floater range. And I think against the Clippers, he proved all you're doing is giving me a runway to get into the paint, and my floater is too good, and I'll get there, and I'll start piddling around with my footwork and my ball fakes. And you'll have no chance. I'll get whatever shot I want. And by the way, while I'm sort of changing pace and piddling around, my eyes are all looking all over for what help rotations are coming. And I'm thinking two steps ahead of you. And I'm going to make some strange, unpredictable interior pass to a a shooter or to a a big man along the baseline. And that, to me, is when people started making the Larry Bird comparison is Larry would get into those situations in traffic and he would just outthink you. And throw a pass you ne- didn't necessarily see coming, and and those those extreme bookend defenses dropping all the way back 
and trapping all the way up. Luca graduated to the point where you just can't do either of those no. against him. It's got to be something in between there somewhere. Right. And, and look, as you say, he's, it's not even just the floater, right? It's the wraparound pass. It's the lob. If, if anybody gets below your Gobert or your, or your Embiid or your Lopez or whoever it is. Right. And, and it's just, but again, I, I think, look, I, I do think, I do believe in the trap on certain guys. Like, unless you have that sort of vision, uh, it, it can be effective, but that's, what's so fun about watching the Luca thing is in talking to people around the league who have to scheme for these things is, you know, of the three guys, this is the guy who got the most exasperated. It's just like, hey, man, you know, and by the way, I think there's some sense of, you know, let him shoot 12 step backs a night. How many is he making? I mean, that, that was the other thing is, hey, if you have to settle, um, maybe you want him going left. Maybe you want him making that that as back breaky as they can be from a psychic standpoint. Is that our best shot? Because, I mean, you've seen the stats, right? Like he's not his step back is not a terribly efficient shot in terms of effective field goal percentage. So, you know, that's another theory. Can he, can he resist? Um, Zach, the Raptors had the most success this season. They have, they put his, by far and away his worst shot quality night, his worst production night. And in classic Raptor nurse form, the junk zone boxing one, and it kind of worked. Um, they, they, you know, they did deploy, as you say, like, let, let's switch it up. They blitz situationally. Um, but there was, you know, they, they were able to get the new defender when they switched to kind of play the one. They were just so tight beyond there. And it sort of limited, again, it limited his ability as a playmaker. It's tougher against that junk zone. Um, and he was just less comfortable. Even, he's not a great isolation player, and he was an uncomfortable isolation player. So it was it was fun to watch that tape because that was, like, it's really the only night this season he's been absolutely riddled. And it's going to be fun to see if anybody just kind of look unearths that game from January of 2021 and says, yeah, maybe. And one of the interesting things about Luca as a, as a counter to the switching thing, I mean, the, the counter to the nurse stuff, you just have to figure out as you go. But he has a good post-up game. He doesn't use it very much. But you see glimpses of like when he gets a mismatch or even when he gets a wing, like he, he did it to Mikhail Bridges a couple of times and he just feels he's stronger than he gets kind of mean and burly and backs him down pretty hard. And whenever he does that, a little light bulb goes off in my head. Just remember that. No, oh, that was that's interesting because that's what you, in the playoffs. I mean, LeBron has been the prototype. You, you just got to be able to score in almost every style or be able to mismatch hunt. And Luca's going to be able to do that, I think, as, as he gets older. I want to talk about Trey. Because the Hawks have had such a strange season. And part of that is completely forgivable. I mean, it's a different lineup every single night. Bogdanovich has barely played. Gallinari has barely gotten his feet under them. Capella missed the start of the season. Hunter, who is having a sensational season, is out now. Rondo has played a handful of games. Chris Dunn has played zero. It's just been a it's been a mash unit the whole year. Um, but they have also just had a strange unevenness to them. And Trey Young is a is the is the fulcrum of their offense, is the fulcrum of everything they do. And so I think the spotlight falls onto him when there's just a sense of the team just isn't sort of finding a consistency and a coherence every night. I have my theories as as to what's going on there, but when you dug into Trey Young and how teams are trying to defend him, what was the most common scheme you found? What was the baseline starting point? that most coaches seem to be settling on. 
It's it's tough because there there has been a real variety. I mean, it's tempting to trap them because, and you and I talked about this a couple uh, about a week ago, which is get the ball out of his hands and don't let him get it back. That that is that is a by the way, Charlotte did that two games. They did it really well. The Jazz kind of did a fair amount of it. They were pretty successful, and so um, it's it's dangerous because if he splits that trap, I mean, forget it, right? I mean, it's four on three with a guy who just has really really good. I mean, it's, it's weird to say he's got good vision because he's tiny, but he just has an ability to thread needles. Um, great interior passes, even when he gets into the paint. Like, it, like it's good. So so that is one school of thought. The other would be, and and I like to look at the double drag screen because that is really their bread and butter, right? Like you get Capella and Collins out there. They'll do it with Gallinari. Um, you know, you got, by the way, both guys can dive. One guy can, in Collins' case, in Gallinari's case, you can pop. And, and that's often where he gets that little butt rear end Steve Nash kryptonite, right? Like, like he will, he will draw a ton of fouls. It was interesting to hear how many assistant coaches and coaches says, don't let him draw fouls. Like that is, you know, it, it, it mucks up the game. He gets a ton of points that way. Um, it bails them out of a lot, you know, kind of these dry series of bad possessions. There are long stretches of games, six, seven games in a row. Where if he doesn't get free throws, he's just not efficient. Like this season, his shooting percentages aren't great. They're a little down, I think. And those coaches are onto something. And now if he weren't getting free throws, maybe he'd, he'd, you know, hunt different kinds of shots or whatever. But this season, it has been true a lot. If you don't send him to the line eight, nine, ten times, he doesn't have a great shooting game. And and therefore, which it'd be funny. You think, oh, the under, but I mean, he can he can actually take advantage of space. It's 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 really interesting for a guy who doesn't eat a lot of space, right? Uh, I mean, a lot of people like to go kind of go over both screens. Um, you know, the first screener defender doesn't have to do much. The second guy, you know, like hedging's become a little bit of a thing again. Um, and, and it, but it, it 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 all of them are dangerous, right? Like. Like, he can pretty much contend with any coverage screen. I mean, you know, you drop the big man, he'll take advantage of that space. Um, but fighting over both streams, you know, the big man kind of moderately up with what a lot of these teams call up to touch or, or short center field. Um, I think making him see a body as he comes off screens is really important. Again, got to be careful, not too high, not too low. There is this sort of Goldilocks uh, screen and roll coverage. But, I, you know, I think... Like, I like that. I'm going to steal that. The Goldilocks? That's what I've always said about Jokic, because if you watch the Nuggets, they've gone through these these fits and starts with Jokic where there were times where they would have him blitz because I think that's the way he preferred to play and that's the way Mike Malone preferred to play him. And he'd just get out on the floor a little bit out of his depth. Then they would drop him back a little bit, but it's the same thing. Like If you drop Nikola Jokic back, you're just giving a good ball handler a runway to accelerate toward a guy who's not going to jump, can't jump. And so I like the Goldilocks position for him, yeah. kind of up at the level of the screen, not too high, not too low. He's still aggressive. He's still an obstacle. And you're not giving guys a runway. Now, guys will get by him, and then a third defender has to come. That's where Damian Lillard has gotten so good, man. Yeah. When you when you bring that big man defender on the screen up, up to or above the level of the screen – he is so often getting by that guy. And then the third, and then all of a sudden another help defender has to come and he's got three guys on him basically. And the, and he's just spraying. He, he's become so good at that. Yeah. But I like, so what I, I was interested in talking about Trey Young because when I've watched the Hawks in the last two or three weeks, I feel like I'm seeing the same play 
50 times a game, which is that double screen from yeah, Collins and Capella. Yeah. The defense goes over. Trey's guys goes over. The big man, the last big man in the chain, doesn't drop but doesn't blitz or trap. He sits a little around the level of the screen, and they kind of invite Trey into that pocket of space, and he takes the invitation, and he just goes pretty quick into that pocket of space, doesn't really slow down or change his pace all that much, and takes a floater. And there was a game against the Knicks where I felt like he took 15 floaters. And I found myself kind of craving a little more variety from him. Like, slow down a little bit. Bait the trap. Like, hang hang out above the screen with a live dribble and see what the defense does. And if they come at you with two, slip that pocket pass. Slip that pass to Collins. Let him play four on three. And hit a, hit Herder over here or Reddish over here. I feel like, and we could talk about why that is. I feel like Trey has games where he has tunnel vision for I'm driving and I'm going to set myself up for either the floater or the lob, and those are the two end goals I have in mind. And look, he's so good, and Capella and Collins are so good at diving to the rim that it it works on the right nights. But there are other, and by the way, their offense with Trey Young on the floor is amazing. I yeah. mean, you can nitpick Trey Young's game. Their offense with Trey Young on the floor is basically equivalent to the best or second best offense in the NBA. Their offense without him stinks. But there are nights where it just feels like I'm watching the same play 50 times. Yeah, and and you can even like the, the uh, that was you know that was basically the double drag, right? Like that is that is their bread and butter. Um, it, it's interesting also because even within his on court time, when he initiates the offense. They have an incredible, incredibly efficient offense. And when he doesn't, which I think is the Charlotte theory, get it out of his hands. You know, they would commit a help side defender, throw two bodies at him very, very early. Uh, by the way, there are teams that want to pick him up at, at, at 85 feet. Um, you know, I, I had one coach say, hey, you know what? The best way to avoid the double drag is to not have to deal with it. Right. And and so the Hornets did this thing where they 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 drop you know they would they would do the two bodies get it out of his hand drop back into a junk zone and kind of go into full denial within that zone basically um, on Trey like like he can get frustrated and we talked about it again like he's not all that interested in participating off the ball it, it is one of his big weaknesses right now there's a little bit of Kyrie disease there um, and you know but but these denying defenders can make life miserable and then okay you know what and if Cam Reddish wants to beat you by creating his own shot. So be it. Now, what's interesting for them, and I don't want to get back into it because I get too far off Trey, um, but Herter being this 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 good playmaker. By the way, the Damian thing, I said on your preseason podcast that he was the best pick and roll player in basketball. That was based statistically. But I, I think what you just said, um, commanding more help even once he gets over it. Like, I think he is the best pick and roll player. And it, it's not something you think about. He, he's known more for the sort of theatrical, uh, you know, long shot but but i i think the basis of his lethalness right now is the pick and roll game and again we've never put him in those terms but it is it is bearing out statistically i test um but we're not talking about damien so i'll stop talking about damien we look this is a damien lillard friendly podcast i am a dame true believer i had him somewhere i've had him on my mvp ballot i think three years in a row um i was apoplectic apoplectic that our friend John Hollinger did not have Damian Lillard in his top nine MVP candidates the other day. I almost kicked him right off the podcast and ended it immediately. I was so angry. I am a Damian Lillard true believer. And by the way, 
when we did, I don't know when the hell I did it with Hollinger three days ago, Dame was like 18 of 32 in crunch time of games. Since then, in like the blink of an eye, he's like eight for eight with five threes. He never misses. It's absolutely bonkers. The Blazers are 18 and 10. They're 18 and 10. Carmelo Anthony is their backup center right now. It is it is band-aids, it is chicken wire, it is bubble gum, and it is working. Um I, I kind of root for them. They're, they're kind of my not? they're my Rudy team this year. But uh yeah. Trey's gonna be a problem. And I, I think and it's funny, I, I think there's a lot of ceiling still to go. Do you buy the notion when you when you really dug in that he's he's playing for assists? That yeah, if oh, he, so pa- he passes, he wants to get the assist. I think especially on the trap he's hunting assists. Now the defense would be like, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. You know, you guys are hilarious. You, you know, you want us to play unselfishly. You want us to exploit help in rotations. And then you're going to, like, you kill us for being selfish. And then you kill us for hunting assists. It's like, so I'm kind of, like, yes, I think he is. Um, and yes, I think it's it's a bit of an unreasonable criticism. So it's, it's interesting. I was watching um, Bulls. I don't know. The Bulls beat somebody last night. They all blend together. And and Levine was going crazy again, and whoever the Bulls were playing, I can't believe I can't. Remember. Oh, the Pistons, uh, the Pistons started trapping Zach Levine on every pick and roll. And you know what Zach Levine did? You're going to trap me? Here you go, Thaddeus Young. I'm not I'm not forcing the issue at all. Here you go, play four on three. I get no assists for this. I get no credit for it unless you're a freaking nerd like me who goes to NBA.com. I want to see how many secondary assists Zach Levine had tonight. Oh, wow, four secondary assists. Great. I'm going to blog about it. Um, You get no credit for it. And I thought to myself, boy, I wish Trey Young would do more of that. You know who leads the league in secondary assists in hockey assists? Trey Young. Yeah, and so it's like I don't really know. I don't really know, but I know. So every I want everyone who has access, and you too, aren't of it. So I want you to, when we're done, I want you to do this. Hawks Knicks the other day. I don't know, four or five days ago. Hawks Knicks, nine forty left in the first quarter. Trey Young down, run. Zach, I'm write this it down. down. My little net because this is a Rorsch, emblem, This is a Rorschach test for listeners. All right, it's nine forty. First, first quarter Knicks Hawks. Whenever this was. All right. Trey Young pick and roll, kicks to Kevin Herter in the left corner. Kevin Herter doesn't shoot. He's pretty open, and he doesn't shoot. He moves the ball around to somebody above the arc, and I think they actually end up scoring. When Kevin Herter passes, Trey Young in the middle of the paint, having just passed to Kevin Herter, to me, it looks as if he gets a very cranky look on his face and very theatrically makes the shoot it motion with like his wrist, his father, like, like shoot it. So um, a generous reading of that would be somebody, his arm got tangled up in traffic. I don't think that's what happened. Another generous reading of it would be, and this is plausible. This is plausible would be, he understands that it was actually optimal for the Hawks offense for Kevin Herter to take that shot. A less generous reading of it would be Trey Young thought I earned a assist opportunity and you took it away from me and I see a fun thing to do during Hawks games is to just watch John Collins just watch nothing but John Collins because sometimes John Collins will stand in the corner for a while and he won't get the ball and you'll see him get a little despondent or upset 
And every team goes through this. And because that leak came out of the Hawks locker room a month or so ago about Trey and John going at it, it's all going to be magnified. And I do think it's normal But I for, for lots of teams. But I do think the Hawks have more sort of little, I'll just call it little moments on the floor of angst than most teams do. And I thought my interpretation of that Trey Young moment was either B, which is the generous interpretation. Kevin Herter, the math says you should shoot, shoot. Or my, I'm not going to lie, my initial interpretation was he's cranky that he didn't get an assist. It's both. And that's the thing. It's both. You can be pissed off that your teammate passed up, you know, a good opportunity to score because, you know, you are trying to win the game. And, you know, you like having assists. I don't think in terms of the hierarchy of piggishness, stealing rebounds is so far higher than hunting assists. Right. So to say nothing of the ball hogging like hero ball and all that stuff. So there so about a month ago in my ten things column, I wrote that one of the things I dislike, one of my dislikes, is when a shot hits the rim and it's going out the rebound is going to bounce out of bounds. Like it's it bounces inbounds, but it's just gonna go out of bounds, right? And no offensive player is anywhere nearby to retrieve it. And so there's one defensive player with a choice. I can either really scramble to try and get this rebound and maybe fall out of bounds and botch it, but get myself one more defensive rebound, or I can just let the f-ing thing go and we can have the ball. And ever since I wrote that, there's one coach in the NBA, and I won't name them, who is texting me that he's obsessed with this. It drives him crazy. And every time I see one, I, we now have a text exchange about it. It, this is this is your t- t- towards pickishness. Draymond Green had one right after I wrote that column. Draymond Green had one. It went out of bounds. The other night, Bobby Portis had one, and it, he tried to save it for some reason. I think he thought I don't know why, and it, and it fell out of bounds. It just just let it go. It causes me anxiety. I'm an anxious person. Just let the ball go. Yeah. Again, I, I mean, I have big issues with Trey. Um, I would say I have medium sized issues with Trey. But the whole notion that someone hunts assists, like someone literally, but so if you are a hunter of assists, it means you try to find the best opportunities for assists, right? Because that's what hunting is. Like you put your bloodhounds on the ground and you try to find the assist. So by definition, what a guy is doing when he's hunting assists is finding great opportunities, which would help him statistically by virtue of the fact that it is a high percentage shot, which is the entire objective of basketball. So like, I do think it's a little unreasonable and, I don't think not everybody hit her like means it as a criticism. I think some people were implying that like, Hey, we know he's going to pass. We need to set our defense to prepare for that eventuality. So I, I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily said pejoratively, but it was said with a little teeny bit of a sneer, we're hunting assists, but it's an important piece of information to know if you're a defensive coach, right? Like he's going to hunt assists, you know, make sure, you know, you, you stay out of rotation to the extent you can. Well, team alchemy is a very complicated thing. And it's fragile, and I think this gets it. One of the things that's hard to understand is if someone's hunting assists, that means they're really controlling the offense a lot and not as many people get to touch the ball. And some guys just like to touch the ball. They like to feel like they're involved. They don't want to be P.J. Tucker standing in the corner for 20 seconds on every possession. Before we get to Zion for a few minutes, I want to ask this question to you. I wonder if this came up at all in talking to coaches. I'm actually interested in sort of the inverse of the question that you were answering in this story, which is, if you have Trey Young and Luka Doncic on your team, is it hard to build a coherent offense for the 10 to 12 minutes a game when they're on the bench? Because everything you do when they're in the game 
revolves around them. Someone brought this up to me with regard to LeBron during his second Cleveland stint. Um, someone within the team. And it stuck with me ever since this person said, we don't really have any idea what to do when LeBron's on the bench because LeBron is the alpha and omega of everything we do. I just wonder, that's a, that's an interesting, I don't know if it's worth me digging into those 10 or 12 minutes a game, but it is an interesting question. Yeah, and by the way, it didn't come up in the conversation, but as, you, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the 2010 Suns, right? That almost beat the Lakers or, or right in that series to, to get to the finals. And they did kind of the hockey unit right like they would just throw six mm-hmm. to ten because what it allowed was now granted drockage had a very nashian approach to the game so i don't think that the general philosophy was any different but i kind of have always loved the hockey um unit because you essentially get to kind of sculpt a coherent offense around it i mean with atlanta it's tough they've had people come in they've had people go out um i'm, I'm trying to think like like with dallas um you know, what are they doing when Luke is not on the floor? Well, I your, mean, Brunson is a nice, would, yeah. Your, your idea would be Brunson and right. or Burke plus Porzingis. Okay, now and maybe you throw Hardaway in there if you want a little more offense. Now you've got, I mean, ready-made, boom, done. Right. And and so you've got shooters on the floor with a big who can, you know, theoretically kind of provide sort of a stability or structure, really, um, to those opportunities. But, yeah, I mean, not a question that came up. Um, I'm now going to, it's interesting, now I'm going to start watching you know, with that with that question in mind for these guys, I, I New Orleans is the team I've seen the least of. I've seen a lot of Zion. I haven't seen a lot of non-Zion sets. I've tended to watch them on film rather than live. Uh, but uh, so I don't know what the hell they're doing. Well, let's talk about Zion because in the last three weeks, it was always kind of happening, but now it's really happening. I mean, he's making these thirteen of seventeen. Mm. For 35-point games look routine. And look, they're not winning all, all these games because their defense is terrible and Zion's a big part of that. But this guy is going to be beyond special on offense. And they're putting the ball in his hand and they've realized he can do pretty much everything with the ball in his hand. Run, pick, and roll, good luck. Post up, iso like Giannis, which is the comparison you make in the piece from the top of the arc, good luck. Play 20, 10 feet off him. He's just going to drive right into you and through you. And by the way, he's he's a better free throw shooter now than Giannis has ever been. He's not a great free throw shooter, but I think his his shot doesn't look hopeless to me. His shot looks all right to me. Um, I don't even know what you're supposed to do against this dude, but you you've you made the comparison to Giannis in the sort of build a wall is going to be the solution, I guess. But but he's going to be a better. He's going to be a better post. He is now a better post player, a smoother, quicker, more explosive post up player than Giannis. No, I mean, when he's on the right block, he is going to rip baseline. And guess what? He's still going to finish with his left. He's going to have his cake and eat it, too. You're going to put him on the floor because, you know, you're going to basically take away his left hand, which is what you want to do. And he's still going to get back. It was so interesting watching a lot of these possessions because he's got he's got it right, right, right. And as he elevates, it's like some freaking Michael Jordan stuff. Like he's still and it's like, wait a minute, because, you know, you're watching on the small screen, uh, you know, on my laptop. And it's like, wait, wait, he actually finished with his left and he kind of gets what he wants. You know, and it's funny, you know, he's a great post up player and you can't really get cute on the post up. Right. Like you need to keep extra size near him. Um and the other thing is, is like Giannis and Simmons to some extent, you know, you're tempted to say, ah, we'll pick him up low, right? Doesn't have much of a shot, doesn't want to shoot um, from that distance. But you pick him up too low. And guess what? He's into this like Anderson Verajal. They're setting these like 
flipping screens now. He's great at rejecting the screen. And by the way, and if you, you're too low, they're just going to set it lower. And now this guy is one dribble from the rim. They're also so, doing the thing with their guards where they set the flat screen so their par- their butts parallel to the baseline. So you can't tell what direction the right. screen is being set in until the very last minute, which is what you're talking about. And like, good luck. It's just half a dribble, half a step, you're dead. It's over. Yeah. The most interesting thing in these conversations was his gravity. Because one of the questions I asked sort of is, okay, is there a scheme or strategy or even a teaching point when he's crashing the glass? Like, what do you do? And, and, you know, one way to treat it is you have to treat him like a shooter like off the ball, um, especially when he's on the weak side because – or especially when he's at the, the elbow or the read spot because his gravity as an offensive rebound is crazy. So you got to treat him like, like vintage Ray Allen, right? Because, you know, if you take your body off him, if you try to go for the rebound, he's just going to crash. Like he's going to get there. Um, and so here you have this guy who otherwise, you know, I mean, you know, if he's way out on the perimeter, you can, you can pull in a little bit, but you, you have to account for him like 17 feet away from the basket when a shot goes up rather than, you know, you know, and, and more than just box out, right? Like, like you literally almost have to put a, your complete body on him. Um, and, and so that's, what's so interesting is just like, you kind of, he has the gravity in certain points, like toward the end of a possession, he has the gravity of a three-point shooter, um, if you play it that way. Well, I've I've said this before. I, I think I, I think this Zion. The reason it's interesting to me is that everything in the Pelicans gets put in the right place with this guy, this version of Zion. He becomes the number one option. Brandon Ingram becomes, you know, when I wrote my big Brandon Ingram feature, I quoted, you know, one of their former assistant coaches used to tell Brandon all the time. We can win titles here if you become our version of Scottie Pippen. Now, I don't want to – That's it wasn't meant as a comparison because Scottie Pippen is an all-time, 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 all-time player. It was just meant in the fact that the minute you get placed in that kind of role in the hierarchy, which requires a Michael Jordan, which requires someone who's the clear number one guy um, – then, then we're we're onto something, and that's and that's Zion, and everything sort of falls into place um, with that guy, and th- and that's why this has been so interesting to me to watch the Pelicans sort of live that out in the yeah. last in the last couple weeks. I know they're excited about it. I mean, he is defensively, he's got a long way to go, but he is just beyond special. Yeah, and and it's interesting because when I pulled up ball handler Zion pick and roll, like. Two thirds of them have come in the last ten to yeah. twelve days, right? Like they weren't really doing that. And you know, if you'd had these conversations three weeks ago, the answer is, well, they're not really. You know, he's not really the ball, and they don't. They don't really run that. Let, let's talk about him as a screener. I can tell you exactly what the numbers were. You know, you can't, it was in my right. column last week. It was two ball screens a game, and then late January. And since it's been like 10, 9 or 10, and it's going up there now. I bet there's been games of 15 since then. Yeah, I mean, it was massive this week. And um, I mean, they're clearly creating packages around this thing and it's going to work. And also, I mean, here's the thing. He's I, I think he's a better passer than we realize. And I just saw too many possessions where he made too many good decisions to sort of dismiss it as, well, you know, make him a passer. Um, I mean, you know, let him try to find guys coming off screens. That's not really his game. 
You know, this isn't LeBron. This is, And it's starting to happen little by little. I mean, he's not there yet, but he is starting to read the floor um, in, a, in a way that, oh, this raw talent is no longer a characterization that works when you consider the body of work that he's building. It was clear game one that he was a good passer. And you don't have to be a great passer if every single time you ha- get one millimeter of advantage on your defender, it's a five alarm fire for the defense because then there's more help coming. The passes are easier to see. One skill bleeds into and flows into the other. And if you're a threat to dunk every single time you get the ball, the passes get a little easier. So I'm very excited about Zion. All right, I've kept you too long, K.A. The piece is up this morning. It's a really good piece. I love when you dig into the X's and O's and get these coaches and players talking to you on Luca, Trey, and Zion. Honestly, three... Boy, is the NBA just going to be interesting for a long time with some of these young talents in the league. Uh, Mr. Kevin Arnovitz, it's good to see you. Have a good weekend. You as well.